welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was sponsored by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Today's guest is Dr. David Calloway from Team Rubicon. Dr. Calloway is a U.S. Navy veteran and professor of emergency medicine at Carolina's Medical Center, where he serves as the Chief of Crisis Operations and Sustainability, the Director of the Division of Operational and Disaster Medicine, and the Medical Director of Carolina's Med One. Prior to his current position, he served as a physician supporting the United States Marine Corps and was a chief resident at the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency in Boston. In 2008, he was awarded a Zuckerman Fellowship from the Center for Public Leadership, Harvard Kennedy School of Government to Study Leadership, National Security, and Disaster Response. Dr. Calloway is the Chief Medical Officer for Team Rubicon, a veteran-led disaster response organization and the co-founder of the Committee for Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, a best practices R&D group charged with translating battlefield lessons learned to civilian high-threat pre-hospital medicine. Dr. Calloway has extensive civilian and military overseas experience in Iraq, Kuwait, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Burma, El Salvador, and throughout Africa. In 2012, the World Economic Forum selected David as a young global leader based upon his innovative work in disaster, humanitarian, and crisis medical response. His areas of interest are high reliability operations, innovation and disaster response, and crisis zone medicine. So welcome, Dr. Calloway. Thanks. I appreciate the time. So tell me a little bit about Team Rubicon. What is Team Rubicon and what do you do? Team Rubicon is a a veteran-led international disaster response and humanitarian organization. And Team Rubicon, we we go by the the short acronym of TR. But uh, TR was founded in 2010 after the Haiti earthquake when a group of combat veterans looked at their experience they had in Iraq and Afghanistan and they thought, some of their skill sets would be relevant in these emerging disaster zones and, and complex humanitarian emergencies. And over the last 12 years, we've grown from eight volunteers to about 120 to 150,000 volunteers on our books. And in the last five or six years, we've moved to become verified by the World Health Organization as a emergency medical team that can deploy to sudden onset disasters globally and coordinate with both the WHO and host country ministries of health. So we work mostly in sudden onset disasters, but have been prepping the processes and the people to be able to work in conflict zones um, over the last few years. And so Team Rubicon has obviously grown, but I think the field of disaster medicine, particularly as a branch of emergency medicine, has really grown as well. Can you talk a little bit about how that's developed and become more of a agreed upon specialty or solid specialty? Yeah, it's a a great question. Prior to 2010, and I'm just going to use this as kind of a general time frame, but prior to 2010, large-scale disaster response was generally done by government agencies. So in the U.S., you can think of the DMAT teams or USAR teams, or they're done by large non-governmental organizations, NGOs like Doctors Without Borders or the International Community Red Cross, the International Federation Red Cross. After 2010, what we found is there were a lot of people who were interested in this type of work, but it was uncoordinated often well-meaning, but with uh, unintended consequences. And so many groups, including the American College of Emergency Physicians, started to increase their effort to professionalize disaster response. Everything from standardizing curriculum for postgraduate residency or fellowship training, to including it in residency training, to work by the WHO to standardize what a response team looks like. And what we've seen is some very good work to professionalize the specialty. 
some good, unique, innovative work to try to figure out how do we capture these areas, especially in emergency medicine, that were perhaps left out in prior models. And then how do we really get top-level care to communities communities in need at their time of greatest need? And so right now, you guys, Team Rubicon, are working in Ukraine. So can you tell me a little bit about the types of care your clinical teams are providing is it trauma, hygiene, transport? What are you guys doing? Yeah, I think this is, a, again, a very important question because in the U.S. in particular, if you just watch the news, all you see are the bombings of Kiev and Dnipro and the, and the Far East where there's lots of trauma. And this is what people think is going on in Ukraine. And that's the only problem. And so a lot of people raising their hands say, I want to go do that, not understanding the complexity of the problem, but also not understanding the depth of the problem. What's happened in Ukraine is... There are a couple of different medical problems. One is the trauma in the Far East, which is largely being managed by the Ukrainian health system. Then there is the displacement of over 10 million people. So about 3.7 million refugees, meaning they've crossed international borders. And then another six and a half million or so internally displaced. So it's like if you took Chicago and Phoenix and moved them to Southern California and you said, all right, health system, start managing that. Or if you took Charlotte and Chicago and just moved it into Mexico and you're like, all right, start handling that. So what our teams have been doing, because we're an American NGO, and it'd be foolish of us to be anywhere near the conflict zone, we've been focusing on how do you care for these internally displaced people? And how do you care for refugees? So much of that has been chronic care. Much of it has been urgent care and primary care. But some of it has been basic emergency care, like we would see with any population of 3 million, you're going to have heart attacks, you're going to have women in labor. Mostly, though, what we've been doing is providing these mobile camps with care from emergency medicine physicians, pediatricians, and primary care doctors in Hungary and then in Western Ukraine. And so I guess often with these massive displacements of people, you see a decrease in hygiene, an increase in many types of infectious disease. Have you guys noticed that at all? And is there any plan in place for working through that? Yeah, two distinct questions, and, and they're both super relevant. So number one is Ukraine had a functioning health system prior to the war. Now, there were significant issues in terms of vaccination. So they had low vaccination rates for measles. COVID vaccination rate was like 35%. HIV and multidrug resistant TB were big problems. But the system was working on those issues. And so when you displace people for the first one week, four weeks, you're not going to see a lot of these issues emerging because the health system structures are still in place. They're just being strained. Now, we will start to see these issues pop up probably starting. I'll just say next week, but like five or six weeks into the conflict, into three months, four months, five months, as these critical health maintenance activities are not performed anymore. Kids aren't getting vaccinations. People are not getting their HIV meds. Cancer patients aren't getting their chemotherapy. So this will start to create really complex strain on the system in Ukraine, but also in the surrounding countries. And so that will emerge and continue to emerge as a big problem in this region if it's not addressed. And then there are a lot of people who are chronically ill, you mentioned cancer patients that may have a lot of difficulty being transported out of the country. Have you guys assisted at all with movement of these really ill patients to places that are a little bit safer? That is a gap that has been identified. And the NGO, so our organization working with other NGOs and then working with the WHO and the Ukrainian Ministry of Health has been working on ways to help augment and improve that process. This is classic emergency medicine, right? There are patients who are mobile, who need services and need to be linked in with the right services. It's just instead of being at a level one trauma center or a community ED and trying to figure out 
do I go to the quant air care, the tertiary care, do I put them in a helicopter, put them in, a, in an ambulance? We're in Ukraine. And so it's, do they need to go to Poland? Do they need to go to Hungary? Is there a system in Western Ukraine where they're already plugged in? Where do they have language skills as well as the medical needs? So the answer is yes. That is an identified challenge that this coalition of partners is working on. And it's an interesting problem, but it's also exceedingly complex when you have multiple nonprofit, non-governmental organizations. You have international organizations like the World Health Organization. And then you have sovereign nations like Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, Moldova, who have their own health systems, their own laws and rules and regulations trying to solve this issue. So it is, again, what I would just say, a classic emergency medicine uh, problem, which is why it's so great to have really smart emergency medicine doctors and nurses on our teams over there who understand the complexity of it. And they don't have an answer, but they understand how to ask the questions, bring the right stakeholders to the table, and then always keep the patient front and center in in everything we do. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to balance. And like you said, there's so many different systems involved. I can imagine the complexity and bureaucracy and just sort of the logistics really becomes an issue over time. It is. And if you're not aware of it, and if you're not used to the complexity of a network, then it can be very frustrating as you try to make rapid decisions. But again, I think as emergency physicians, we're able to balance making rapid decisions with also respecting the fact that there is a complex bureaucracy there. It doesn't matter that we don't know the the intricate details of this particular bureaucracy. We understand it's there. So we understand we need to engage it. And we understand that we need to partner to solve the problem. Again, that's critical to any sort of response like this, where an organization like ours partners with local hospitals, local ministries of health to help augment their response. And it's critical because we, we never deploy without a specific ask from the country and from the Ministry of Health or from a health system representative. It would be irresponsible and unethical for us to show up in a country and start practicing medicine. We don't do that. And I think it's important when we start thinking about how do you engage and, and how do you respond to events like this, that people who are interested in helping find a vetted organization, make sure that they're following the rules, make sure that they're abiding by the structure that's out there. And just, you know, if you're ever wondering what to do, just think about, would we ever accept a foreign doctor coming into Iowa or North Carolina and just all of a sudden starting to practice medicine? The answer is no. So we should have the same respect with any other country that we're working with. Absolutely. I think you also made a really great point about sort of the uncertainty in this type of situation and how emergency practitioners are really great at working in those areas where there's not a definitive answer. There's not necessarily all of the diagnostic information or all of the information about how something is going to work or going to end up. But I think where emergency practitioners really excel is being able to look at a situation and make fast decisions based off of limited information in order to inch things closer to a good resolution. I think you're absolutely right. And, and then the flexibility to pivot where the need is. And you asked what our teams are doing. You know, our teams have been providing, as I said, this mobile care to different internally displaced camps, and refugee camps. But we've also gotten asks to help with point of injury, trauma training, and basic emergency care, and even chemical, biological, and nuclear response capabilities for hospitals. And so the ability to say, I thought I was going there to practice clinical medicine, but now I'm being asked to train and be okay with that is something that we pride ourselves on at Team Rubicon is find the mission, find the expertise, partner with local organizations, and then make sure you're caring for people in their greatest time of need. That may be training. It may be transportation support. It may be direct patient care. 
It may just be uh, to serve as a convener to help bring partners together that otherwise wouldn't have spoken. So I think you sort of just answered this question a little bit, but can you tell me a little bit about what a typical day might look like on the ground for either personnel? Yeah. So we right now we have a type one mobile emergency medical team in Western Ukraine. And so that's a team that's verified by the WHO to meet a certain standard of capability. And that capability is the ability to provide urgent and primary care for 100 patients a day, self-sustained without being resupplied food, water, or medical equipment. So a typical day for our team right now would be would start the night before and would start with conversations with local partners about what a need, what a perceived need or perceived gap is, generating what we call an operation order for the next day so that our support team in Poland and our support team back in the United States knows what our plan is for the next 24 hours. And then it could be everything from deploying mobile teams to an internally displaced camp to either assess whether there is a need there or to provide care. We may split the team. So one part of our team goes to provide care. And as we did the other day, part of our team went and did training at a local hospital. So our team is up, they're mobile. They're usually based out of a partner facility. And then we try to move around to both assess need, deliver care, and then deliver training. And so they've been in and out. What I'll say that the one unique thing is probably at least two to four times a day, everything's interrupted by air raids. And so Russians either fly a plane into Ukrainian airspace or launch a missile. And so air raid sirens go off and our teams have to find a place to shelter until the air raids are over. So that is a significant disruptor of all operations. And I think our team has been pretty resilient. We have both veterans and civilians who never served on our teams and and they've recognized what this is. And I think they have a pretty good support mechanism in place to make sure that People are not getting uh, too anxious about it. And we have very good safety protocols in place to make sure that our teams are all safe. Yeah, I can imagine that being extremely disruptive to the process of trying to accomplish whatever that day's goals are. I mean, I know once in the emergency department, all of the power went out. And I mean, it was very short. It was just for a couple of minutes, but it really disrupted care. So I can't imagine what multiple disruptions like this a day would do to the plans. And to your point, you really have to be able to pivot quickly and understand the current situation and how to how to regroup and change based off of that changing situation. Well, and this might be one of the areas where the lack of sleep hygiene of emergency physicians might actually be a strength because, you know, it's much like being on call. You get The sirens are at random times, but there's almost always one at night sometime. And so this ability to wake up, not be angry and frustrated, go move down to a bomb shelter and then fall back to sleep, then get back up when it's over and go back up to your bed and then function the next day is critical in an environment like this. And, and so I'm trying, we always try to think of what are the positives for, to the negative things of our career, but, but the ability to, to function with poor sleep hygiene is uh, important in this environment. Sort of as medical providers, we often want to do whatever we can to help. However, in areas of crisis, medical volunteers can sometimes show up and try to provide assistance in maybe a disorganized manner. So what advice do you have for volunteers or individuals thinking about going to Ukraine to help medically? So number one is make sure you're a good provider. And I'm I'm just going to speak to doctors just because it'll make it easier. But the first thing is be a good doctor or a PA, but be like you need to be good at your job before you do anything else. The second is be realistic about what your constraints are. So understand that there will be significant discomfort, significant variability. You may not have great food. You may not have water. So be realistic about that. The third is find a vetted organization. Do not show up on your own. Do not form an NGO out of the blue and then just show up because you're going to put yourself at risk. You're going to put other NGOs at risk and you're going to put patients at risk. And then the final thing is if you're serious about it, 
use this as an opportunity to learn about disaster medicine, humanitarian response, and start to become a student of the game. You don't have to become an expert right off the bat, but if this has inspired you to get more engaged, go find some online co- courses, go find an NGO, start doing some volunteer work, get the skill set, get the experience, and then be ready for the next deployment. And then finally, just what we all can do as humans, right? Like be good neighbors, be good people. This is a war that's threatening our humanity. And we can either at home continue to be cynical and cruel to each other and fight about stupid things, or, or we can say, hey, look, enough is enough. And we want to create an environment in our communities that really counters this type of aggression and hate. And maybe we come out of this stronger in the US. That's such a great point. Because I think when you see war, you see conflict, it really gives people a sense of uncertainty. And that uncertainty sometimes can lead to behavior that maybe isn't following the golden rule, not really treating your neighbors as kindly as we could in a situation like this. And so I really love that you have brought that up. And you know, one way that we really can combat anything like this is just with kindness and sharing kindness in, in your daily life. Yeah. And, and when I say this, please know that I'm not being moralistic because I, I struggle with it too. It's really hard not to be filled with rage when you see injustice. I mean, it's really hard to act with kindness and love. But but if you just also apply it to your daily life in the emergency department and think about those moments where you get frustrated with the person who comes in the emergency department all the time or you feel like they're using services inappropriately, I mean, perhaps use this as a moment to reflect in, about how good our lives are and the responsibility with which we've been tasked to be standing there on the front lines, either in Ukraine or in your emergency department, caring for people in their greatest time of need. And yeah, that's part of why I do this work is it's a constant reminder to try to be a better person, be a better doctor. There have been some reports of physicians who've been attacked and killed while providing medical assistance in Ukraine. Do you have any concerns about this for the teams working there now? Absolutely. I mean, so as a chief medical officer and one of the operational leaders, my first job is to make sure that our teams are safe and then to make sure that there's a mission they're providing the right care. But we have a duty to care to make sure that our teams are protected. Now, if you get closer to the conflict zone, you're at greater risk just in general. But the troubling thing here, much like we've seen in other conflicts in the last 20 years that have been non-state actor conflicts, is that the respect for humanitarian aid and the neutrality of humanitarian workers has, has started to erode. And so specific targeting of of humanitarians, it is a threat. It's been a growing threat. What's more concerning to me here is this is the first time where you've had an actual state actor specifically who is part of the system, whether it's the UN Security Council or these other international humanitarian law guiding bodies who appears to be specifically targeting health workers. And so the answer is yes. And it means we have to do things like, you know, talk about operational security. So how we use our cell phones and how we create convoys, how we communicate, whether we should or should not be wearing you know, red crosses and marking our vehicles, which historically has always been something you do. So these things are on our mind all the time. I think we have a very good team in place, some good expertise. But at, at the same time, when you go into complex humanitarian crises like this, randomness cannot be controlled. And it's a factor that you just have to accept. All you can do is prepare and plan as best you can. But there's some things that are just going to happen if you put yourself in higher risk environments. And so that weighs on my mind every single night, weighs on the mind of every one of our operational leaders every single night. We talk to our volunteers before they deploy. We talk to them once they've agreed to deploy and before they leave. And then we talk to them again when they get into Eastern Europe before they go into Ukraine. So we give them multiple opportunities in private and as a team to say, hey, look, I know I said, okay, at the beginning, but now I'm a little concerned. So we give them multiple opportunities to change their mind. 
without any consequence or any penalty because we understand what we're asking of these volunteers. Especially over the last two years with the COVID pandemic, you've really seen medical providers sort of step up and put their lives at risk essentially to help people. And I think that's the reason a lot of us went into the medical fields was because we wanted to be able to make a difference. We wanted to be able to help in times of struggle, whether that's a personal struggle or global struggle. And so I personally am so grateful for what they're doing and you know, really appreciate that you guys are out there and working to help everyone. We appreciate it. And, and I would agree with you. I think Partly why you go into medicine is to help people and why you go into emergency medicine is because you have this sense of willingness to stand on the raggedy edges of society and and care for people who have been disenfranchised or marginalized. And one of the things that I've seen in the last two years of COVID is people stepped up and they stepped up for a long time and they're tired. And oddly, even though there's tremendous amount of work, it's recalibrated people's sense of purpose and meaning. And so what we've seen with this is is COVID was a long strain. This current crisis in in Ukraine in particular is an acute need. And what we've heard from some of our volunteers is it's allowed them, again, just to to find a sense of purpose and the morass of all that's gone on in the last few years and focus in on something very discreet and very tangible that allows them to say, I'm doing something right now to, to really like preserve humanity and to focus on my oath as a clinician to provide care the people who are being, again, marginalized. And so it's very interesting to listen to stories of these people who've been on the front lines of COVID for two years, who are now going and doing this and and how they process both of those really complex problems. What is one thing that you or the teams on the ground you think would want everyone to know about what's going on in Ukraine right now? That the real crisis is, is that is being missed are the displacement of people. So of those 10 million people I talked about earlier, the vast majority are women and children and the elderly. And I would just say as EM physicians, we know that human trafficking is a massive problem. We know that women and children are highly vulnerable in general, but specifically when they've been displaced from social support networks. And my fear, both as an EM physician and as a father of, of two daughters, is that the crisis will miss is what's happening to all these women and children as they get displaced. And that's not really, it's not hitting the cover of the New York Times or the Washington Post or Fox News. It's talked about within the professional circles, but I don't know that it's getting enough of a highlight and I don't think it's getting enough resources to actually proactively prevent this from happening. So I think our teams would say they're seeing mostly women and children. They're worried about what happens after we give the child with a fever Tylenol. What happens to them next? What happens to them a week from now when they're staying in a shelter in another country where they don't speak the language? So I think that's probably one of the things that our team would want people to think about and be aware of. Is there any way our listeners both in and outside the United States can provide assistance to Team Rubicon? Yeah, I really appreciate the ask. So teamrubiconusa.org. If you go to that website, you can donate. You can track some of the work we're doing. We're also on social media, so you can track our progress on all the social media channels. I'm an old guy, so I don't know what they all are. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever the cool one is now, our team is on all of them. And then consider signing up as a volunteer. The likelihood of deploying to Ukraine right now if you just signed up is probably lower unless you have very specific skill sets because we've got a pretty deep bench. But but we also respond. We were in Mongolia and Papua New Guinea and Uganda doing COVID operations last year. We've got tons of work on our plate. And so we need qualified, passionate individuals who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world. So volunteer, donate, and please pass the word, continue to support Team Rubicon. Thank you so much. Any final words before we wrap this up? No, just thank you. Thanks for the time to chat and appreciate all my emergency medicine colleagues who 
and supporting Team Rubicon and continue to do good work on the front lines. Keep it up. Well, thank you. We really, really appreciate that you joined us today, especially knowing that you have so much going on right now. Well, it's off to a a 10-year-old birthday party right now. So that'll probably be far more stressful than this interview. Probably. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for this episode. Great. Thank you. Our guest today was Dr. David Calloway of Team Rubicon. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. If you like what you hear, please give us a like, subscribe, or comment. Until next time. Thank you.